Hello, everyone. I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. Welcome to Tuesday Night Rheumatology. Tuesday Night Rheumatology, we have select series for you to learn from, in this case, uh, what we did at Room Now Live during March. So for the next five weeks, we're going to have these Tuesday Night Rheumatology sessions where we will feature um, the most important excerpts from the lectures in the individual uh, uh, sessions or pods, we call them, at Room Now Live. Tonight, we're talking about rheumatoid arthritis. Next week, we're talking about psoriatic arthritis. The week after, vasculitis. On the 23rd, it's spondoarthritis. And then on the 30th, it's going to be rheumatoid arthritis again. So this series of Room Now Live replays is brought to you by and sponsored by AbbVie, the prime sponsor for Room Now Live and also the sponsor for much of the rheumatoid arthritis content you'll see this week and the psoriatic arthritis content you'll see next week. Thanks to AbbVie for their sponsorship. Uh, we're going to tonight talk about um, rheumatoid arthritis. The session is entitled A Revolution in RA Therapy. We have three fabulous speakers, Dr. Kevin Dean on preclinical RA, Dr. Stanley Cohen talking about JAK inhibitors and what's new, especially on safety. And then lastly, Dr. Michael Brenner from Harvard talking about fibroblasts as important stromal cells in the pathogenesis of RA. So I'm going to show you back-to-back, -back, basically 15, 16-minute clips. It's going to run for the next 15 minutes on the three lectures. Enjoy that. Write down your questions in the Q&A uh, on the chat. We'll follow that, and we'll answer your questions at the end of this session. So let's run the video and hope you enjoy these excerpts from Room Now Live.
So I don't think we're hearing the sound on this video. Tammy, can you check your computer for sound in the playback? I'm checking right now. This is where the program was supposed to begin with Dr. Dean talking about general concepts on who gets classified as preclinical RA. Prior to this, he had gone into three different case scenarios uh, and discussed um, different time points when you still don't qualify as having rheumatoid arthritis, um, but there's sort of like almost three stages on the way to developing it. This is a Dutch biomarker study where they're looking at- Factors including outer antibodies. Around there we go. percent of those people get rheumatoid arthritis by 24 months, but less, less or more depending on how you look at that. So 30% is a nice rule. So take home prediction is if you're anti-CCP positive, there's about a 20 to 30% overall risk for developing articular clinical rheumatoid arthritis within the next three to five years. Probably goes up if you follow these people longer, those studies have not been done in that link yet. Depending on the study though, you can probably get a higher or even lower kind of prediction. Keep that number in mind. So fortunately this natural history of RA um, and this ability to predict future rheumatoid arthritis has led to prevention. I'm gonna spend Next few minutes talking about this before we get into some future thoughts. But importantly, in rheumatoid arthritis, 
but think about what type of prevention are we talking about? There's lots of like, historical understanding of types of prevention, primary, secondary, or tertiary. Those are actually very hard to apply when you're understanding a disease and when disease starts, starts changing. So operationally, in prevention studies of rheumatoid arthritis, the, the goal has been to stop or delay the first swollen joint on examination classified, classifiable rheumatoid arthritis. Importantly, most of these prevention studies I'm going to talk about have been implemented in people who presented to a rheumatologist with pain but did not have inflammation on joint examination. They may or may not have had imaging findings, which I'll tell you about. Very complicated slides in the next few ones. These are mostly for your reference. I'll talk about a few high points. A study published in 2010 from the Netherlands was dexamethasone in individuals who were either at rheumatoid or ACPA positive, also had a genetic factor that shared epitope and they had joint aches and pains. Two doses of dexamethasone, 100 milligrams, uh, about six weeks apart. There was no difference in progression to inflammatory arthritis, slight decrease in antibodies in the treated folks. So it didn't work to prevent rheumatoid arthritis. But look over here, overall of that group, only 21% developed rheumatoid arthritis at, at uh, uh, 26 months of follow-up. So this is that 20 to 30% range. You might have expected higher, but that's what they got out of this. Next study had a bigger splash, the Prairie study. This was also done primarily in the Netherlands. They took individuals who were rheumatoid factor and positive with aches and pains, slightly elevated CRP, gave them a single dose of rituximab versus placebo. No difference in progression of rheumatoid arthritis, but the rituximab group did have a delay of the onset of their inflammatory arthritis by about 12 months. So delay, but not prevention. A last study here, STAP-RA, which was using atorvastat in the similarly high-risk group of rheumatoid factor at ACPA or high ACPA and aches and pains. Torvastat kind of based on some epidemiologic evidence that people on statins have less RA overall than people not on statins. They took a shot at this. Absolutely no difference in rheumatoid arthritis here. They had a lower rate of transition to rheumatoid arthritis, 24%. Uh, admittedly, that was a little bit of a hard to follow up. So these agents haven't really worked. Now here's, I'm gonna spend a few minutes on this trial here. Treat Earlier, published last year. This was a slightly different twist. They took individuals with aches and pains who had MRI evidence of inflammation in their joints. They gave them either methylpred plus methylpred one dose plus methotrexate up to 25 milligrams per year versus placebo. There was no difference in progression to persistent RA over the two year period of the study. They treated them for a year and followed them for a year after that. But there were some decreased measures of disease activity and MRI inflammation. And again, I think you should have all these slides to look at. I won't drill through some of the numbers in the interest of time, but there's some interesting findings if you drill into this study. The blue lines up there are the people who are ACPA negative or CCP negative. The red lines are people who are CCP positive. The lower line, which is pinkish colored, those are people on methotrexate. And while they were on methotrexate, they actually had slower progression to rheumatoid arthritis. They lost that effect after they stopped the drug. But fascinating to think, and they didn't find this to be statistically significant, but is there an early effect of methotrexate actually blunting this process? Well, they also found in this study was function and MRI inflammation improved in the methotrexate arm. So on the left-hand side, there's physical functioning measured by the hack. People on methotrexate actually felt better on drug that persisted once they were off drug. On the right-hand side, these are MRI-based inflammation, suggesting MRI, so, sorry, suggesting methotrexate modulated the disease to a less severe form of disease if you took it, even if you still developed inflammatory arthritis. Now, this is a very complicated slide, uh, but 
focused on the red letters. This is the stop RA study, which uh, I have been the PI on, which we basically took hydroxychloroquine versus placebo um, in individuals with high CCP. Study design was this, found people who were CCP positive, didn't care about symptoms at all. Uh, 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 we certainly assessed those, but that wasn't an inclusion factor. Gave them hydroxychloroquine for a year versus placebo and stopped and followed them for two years off study drug. And I see some members of the audience who have participated in the study and thank you for that. Um, I won't spend too much time, but they are very well-matched groups. And here's the heartbreaker. These two curves are the individuals on Plaquenil, the, the blue line, and on placebo, the red line. If you were trying to draw curves that overlaid each other, you'd probably have a harder time than uh, our actual study proved this. So absolutely no delay in, in uh, a development of rheumatoid arthritis, which again was heartbreaking. We thought this would be a great way to approach this disease. Didn't work. So it's disappointing. We're pending analysis to see if people actually felt better on hydroxychloroquine, even though they still progressed the disease or if they had modified disease activity similar to that treat RA study. So stay tuned. There's a couple of ongoing prevention trials. There's some early data out of this bottom one called ARIA, which is out of Germany, where they were given um, abatacept for six months in individuals that were aquapositive plus at MRI findings. They, they are encouraging initial results. I think we have to wait for the full full study, but they may actually blood disease. In interest of time now, I'm gonna go very quickly through the next few slides to get to some few key points. But know that other studies are being studied. SMILE is in lupus, taking individuals with incomplete lupus, seeing if they can block that. There's prevention trials on psoriatic arthritis. So exciting fronts and a lot of different diseases. So there's a key point. Steroids alone, rituximab, atorvastatin, methotrexate um, did not stop progression to clinical RA. Rituximab times one dose may delay RA, but that's probably not something we're going to be doing in clinical care anytime soon. Methotrexate may improve symptoms and the severity of RA. We're waiting to see how hydroxychloroquine affects in that space. Preliminary abatacept may delay. It might reduce symptoms, but we have to see. Currently, we've focused on prevention, but this treat RA, treat earlier study is really understood. Maybe we're actually treating something now, not just thinking about prevention of RA in the future, but for making people feel better now or modulating disease. This may be a new way to get at this. So, a couple of key questions I'm going to whip through here as I see my moderators are on the stage already. Um, we really do have to understand what RA is, and maybe we'll start defining it differently. We've thought about clinical RA as a swollen joint on examination or classifiable disease. We may have to start thinking differently about that. We have to know who needs what therapy, what are standard, why are standard DNRs not working? They, we all thought they would work better in all these trials and really haven't. And of course, what's driving the development of disease will underpin studies in the future. This is that picture I showed you before. Understanding each of these stages and what's happening biologically at each of these points is important. And that green explosion in the middle there, is why do some people develop autoimmunity and then hold steady in a benign autoimmune state for years? If we could figure that out, maybe we could give more people those interventions to help modulate their disease. Now, the fifth point that I'm gonna spend the last minute on here is what do I do now as a rheumatologist for someone who has either pain or no pain or abnormal autoantibodies? This is what I do. These are not guidelines. This is being hotly studied now. So hopefully we'll have some better information for you all going forward. I carefully examine to identify synovitis. They have synovitis, I would call this person RA. I'll tell you about imaging in a second. Educate on RA and symptoms and known prediction, which I use this number of 30% risk in the next three to five years. I promote research if possible. I recommend lifestyle changes that may impact immune health. These are not studied, this is a, cap, a caveat, they're not studied to prevent rheumatoid arthritis. 
but it involves smoke, smoking cessation, healthy weight exercise, diet, Mediterranean diet, has some potential general health benefits and may actually blunt disease. Periodontal health is a big question I get asked about. We actually don't know if brushing your teeth prevents rheumatoid arthritis, but it's good for your teeth, so it's reasonable to advise. Um, some people have argued, could it be worse if you have an autoimmune state and you start flossing at that point? Could that actually trigger autoimmunity? It's an area we have to think about, but I think in general, good dental health is good. I like annual in-person clinical follow-up because in my experience in pre-RA, would you believe the onset of rheumatoid arthritis in most people is pretty subtle and not crippling at the onset? And we actually find people who know they're CCP positive come in with swollen joints and say, you know, I actually didn't feel that bad. I wasn't sure if I was supposed to call you or not. And really seeing these people and continuing education is critically important. All right, this is this model again. I won't spend much more time on this, but this is hopefully now going to move us to the point where we're going to be able to take these two cases and understand what to do with them. A couple seconds here on imaging. I feel that the role of imaging is not clear. There's others who are more expert than I. Phil Conahan is going to speak a little bit later. He's certainly an expert in this area. It's not clear what we should be doing routinely with this at this point. Um, and, and certainly we have different modalities. We have ultrasound, we have MRI. Our current gold standard is really clinical diagnosis based on your examination. I don't even know where synovial biopsy may fit into this. Uh, Irish are doing some interesting studies looking at biopsies in this early period. What to see. Consider though, imaging is expensive, very hard to interpret in some people, especially in this early disease. But if you decide to treat, use imaging or other things to treat, please counsel that whatever you do may not prevent developing rheumatoid arthritis, but it might make them feel better, may modulate disease. I'll leave this up to you, no guidelines. Um, a couple of questions here. What is critical, critical for rheumatology to address? In interest of time, I'm going to leave this mostly for you to read, but I think we have to all know in the field, what do we call this? How do we define these things? How do we find effective therapies and know that there's going to be more studies going on in the future? We have to find out ways to find at-risk people. I will just tell you right now, I advocate for really good biomarkers tested broadly in the population, like we all do in internal medicine for cholesterol screening, diabetes screening. We have to be very careful with that, make sure our tests are really good. But uh, I, think I would love to move us into that period. If we sit around and wait for people to have aches and pains and then check CCP, I think that's really going to find RA at a too, too late of a state. Stay tuned on that. I'm happy to fight you over that at a cocktail tonight. Um, I would say one thing, if we felt more comfortable, if of all the people who are active positive, we know 30% on average progress to RA, if we could understand that better, I think that would make us all feel more comfortable and people are really looking into that in the, in the, in the future. Some images to balance into your mind. We really do want to balance over-treatment of the wrong people, under-treatment of the right people and also trying to understand how each of us get there, because I think you've probably all seen each one of these cases of rheumatoid arthritis. Let me tell you, each of these people are probably coming to their RA in a different way, understanding that's going to be important. Oh, this is a bad slide generator. That's me. Summary, we can identify people who get before they get clinical RA. At-risk individuals may come to your clinic. 30% is a nice rule for who's going to move on to clinical RA. Trials to date have not found effective prevention, the emerging possibility to modify symptoms or modulate future disease. We need more studies. We can counsel and make shared decisions whether you're gonna intervene or not. And please stay tuned for more research in this area. And really, I think the future of rheumatology is tired of waiting for people to get sick and finally showing up in our clinic. If we can really move disease into prevention, I think we're gonna do better.
I have some, this is mostly a review. I've had some funding, especially for the stop RA study from the NIH. So I thank them for that. Again, I thank everybody in the room who has participated in the stop RA study. And with that, I'll stop. I'm over time. Sorry. All right. Thank you. I want to uh, remind the audience, both at home and here, that if you have questions for other speakers, um, it's in the player, it's under polling, uh, and in the green tab, and you can ask the questions. We'll be doing that during our uh, half hour panel discussion. But uh, two quick questions, Kevin, before yep. we go on to our next uh, talk. One is a nosology count. Uh, there's undifferentiated arthritis. There's at risk. You use yep. preclinical RA. There's clinically suspect arthrologists. Yep. Uh, are they all the same? No. And depending on who you talk to, the exact same term may be defined differently. Um, and so it's a huge problem. So I, I won't have a good answer for you. They're not the same. I think the field needs to come up with well-defined terms. Okay. And they're working on it, but it's slow progress. Um, Dr. Adwala uh, in the virtual audience asks, uh, is there another biomarker for early RA? So there are growing numbers of biomarkers that we're trying to interpret. As a general concept, it's likely not going to be a single biomarker, but a panel of biomarkers that's going to be helpful. So it's going to be something like an ACPA test plus something else that's going to allow us to understand better where somebody is at in that, in that evolution of rheumatoid arthritis and more specifically. So you might have seen in research studies, we can actually break apart a CCP test into its individual components, but that's not clinically available. I would say the future is looking at multiple biomarkers to kind of give a score that will give us a better idea of where people are at. So I'd say great concept and great question. Stay tuned for better, for better data and more actionable testing. That and lead to transcription of cytokine genes in the nucleus. And there, these are pleiotropic, uh, multiple cytokines are impacted by this pathway. You've all seen various depictions of this uh, uh, slide. Uh, and uh, we have, you know, a Jack, and the Jack signal in pairs, a Jack 1, Jack 3, Jack 1 can signal with TIC2, Jack 2 as well. Originally, it was felt that um, uh, blocking both a Jack 2 would be lethal. It certainly was in animals, but it turned out that you could uh, block Jack 2 along with Jack 1, TIC2, and so forth. So uh, there's different cytokines. IL 6 is a very important cytokine, which is inhibited by. Uh, Janus kinase signaling, blocking signaling, uh, IL-1223, uh, you can block uh, interferons, type 1 interferons, so attractive target possibly uh, for lupus. Uh, we also know that inhibiting TIC2 is uh, clearly effective uh, with ducravacitinib and psoriasis. So uh, multiple therapies have been developed based on this knowledge of the JAK-STAT pathway. Uh, this slide ran out of time. I could, couldn't, couldn't figure out, I'm not as good as Jack with slides. I couldn't figure out how to get 2022, 2023 on here. But basically what you have is the growth of the Jack inhibitors over the last decade from 2012 on in rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, and ulcerative colitis. And now we'll be adding Crohn's for betacidinib as well. So it's, uh, these drugs are very effective uh, and rightfully so have been approved for multiple indications. These are um, the JAK inhibitors, which have been approved for other IMIDs, uh, immediate inflammatory diseases, or either under development. Uh, Ducravacidinib is now approved for psoriasis and phase three trials for psoriatic arthritis. Uh, it's uh, in clinical trials for Crohn's. Uh, TOPA trial was terminated due to lack of efficacy. Multiple therapies for atopic dermatitis. It's amazing how well we've done with the really troubling uh, syndrome, which we've had to deal with in the past. 
In lupus, baricitinib, we know the phase three trials failed to show efficacy with phase two was successful. Uh, Upadacitinib and Ducrevacitinib trials are ongoing in, in lupus. Uh, JIA, Topacitinib is approved, and then Barry and Upadacitinib ongoing clinical trials. And, and this list changes day to day, so this may not be totally up to date. Alopecia areata, Universalis, uh, Baricitinib has now been approved. Other clinical trials are ongoing, vitiligo, and then we are participating in a clinical trial with refractory dermatomyositis with a JAK1 TEC3 inhibitor. There's been investigator-initiated trials uh, in Sjogren's, and I just was on yesterday, got an email about a trial with one of the JAK inhibitors in Sjogren's, which actually is a pharma-sponsored trial. Uh, preliminary work Denise Kana did in scleroderma suggested a very early study there may be some benefit. Uh, giant cell arteritis, Takayasu arteritis, there have been investigator-initiated trials, the auto-inflammatory syndromes, uveitis, and we know about the emergency use authorization for baricitinib in, in COVID. So this is a, a busy slide. And, and again, uh, in all of the clinical trial programs, the uh, JAK inhibitors, each one of them, and there's actually five of them. We have three of them on the market in this country. Fogadinib is in the rest of the world. Pepsidinib is in Asia. And they all took on adalimumab in the clinical trials. And I'm, for the sake of time, I'm just going to, because this is really the 40,000 foot view, they all were successful. The Janus, each individual Janus kinase inhibitor was effective uh, as adalimumab or in some cases uh, with certain clinical outcomes superior uh, with baricitinib and upadacitinib. Uh, but uh, clearly showed that we finally had, after many years, the efficacy with a small molecule that we have with biologics. And Artie and I and others in Jack who did clinical trials, we spent about 20 years with other small molecules trying to emulate what we saw between epidemics and we had failed until the JAK inhibitors uh, were approved. Uh, this was a study looking at uh, patients who uh, were failures or incomplete response or intolerance to biologic DMARDs. And this was upadacitinib, the approved dose, 15 milligrams versus uh, abatacep. And uh, what you can see here is that um, the upadacitinib was superior in the Delta and the DAS28 CRP at week 12, which remained uh, statistically different in week 24, although the numbers narrowed, abatacep somewhat slower onset of action. Uh, and again, in the more higher threshold hurdles, as well as the ACR responses, uh, looked like upadacitinib was uh, better or same in most of these uh, as well. Again, a tougher population of biologic uh, experienced patients. So again, clearly showing uh, benefit. This was in psoriatic arthritis, didn't show up that well, but this was 15 to 30 milligrams of upadacitinib, 30 milligrams was not approved, and we'll show you reasons why in, uh, in rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis. But uh, clearly showing very similar efficacy to adalimumab compared to uh, the placebo in the bottom. Uh, and again, uh, showing a significant efficacy in this particular immune uh, mediated inflammatory disease. And then again, these slides are in your handout. Um, this is Ducravacidinib in a phase two randomized clinical trial recently published in lupus. And uh, what you have is uh, the week 32 uh, endpoint and week uh, 48, if I'm reading correctly. And going left to right, you have the SRI-4, which is one of the standard criteria now. And all doses without a dose response, there is no dose response between the 3, 6, and 12 milligrams of ducrapacitinib, but uh, basically superior to placebo. And on this portion of the slide, you can see actually a drop in anti-double-stranded DNAs, complement improved. And this may have to do with um, the uh, type 1 interferon signaling uh, uh, through uh, TIC2 that's being blocked. Uh, mother, there may be other MOA, but certainly may be playing a role. 
So as far as efficacy, uh, I think it's clear that uh, JAK inhibitors work in multiple uh, emits with the similar and comparable efficacy to TNF inhibitors. Uh, there were some studies with UPA and baricitinib showing statistical superiority to alimumab plus methotrexate. Small numbers of patients, clinical significance is unclear, but clearly they all work. Uh, we showed you the data from select choice of abatacitinib statistically superior to in biologic experience patients, psoriatic arthritis uh, effective. Um, we're not showing you data in early RA. The JAK inhibitors were superior to methotrexate uh, in uh, methotrexate naive patients, but uh, clearly that's not available for us to use at this point, but maybe in three or four years when one of the first JAK inhibitors becomes generic. Uh, despite preclinical data, whether it be biochemical data, cellular data, suggesting different JAK isoform inhibition uh, with the different therapies, and there's a lot of flaws in those assays, depending on how much drug you put in, how much substrate you put in there, efficacy results are comparable. So there's really no difference as far as efficacy between the various JAK inhibitors and which particular isoforms preclinical data suggested they inhibit. And the latest recommendations from the ACR as far as treatment recommendations, we elevated JAK inhibitors to the same status as biologics after CSDMAR failure, but then we retracted that after some of the safety issues, which we'll discuss in detail, uh, came out. What about real-world studies? Uh, there's been some publications, presentations. This is the jackpot study, which, depending on the publication you read, is 16 international registries or 18 international registries. And they looked at uh, comparative effectiveness of JAK inhibitors basically by retention on therapy or survival on therapy. Uh, 25,000 patients, about <clears throat> 6,000 on JAK inhibitors, majority on TNF inhibitors. And what they found, as you would expect with a new drug, uh, patients with JAK inhibitors were had higher CRP, higher disease activity, had failed more uh, previous uh, targeted synthetic or biologic DMARDs. And uh, of interest, and we know that about 50% of people on JAK inhibitors are on monotherapy without methotrexate or other CST marks. And, and what they found uh, in following the patients over three years, about median two years, is that uh, basically retention rate on JAK inhibitors was similar to the other uh, biologics. And, you know, some would argue, well, that's the last drug we have available. That's why we're going to continue them on the drug. But it, there's certainly not a significant uh, drop-off uh, over time uh, compared to the other uh, uh, more aggressive therapies. And then they uh, recently uh, looked at the question of, can we cycle JAK inhibitors? There are no clinical trials that look at cycling from one JAK to another. And they had 365 patients who cycled uh, from one JAK to another, either for lack of efficacy or intolerability, or switched. And again, what you can see, sort of like Kevin's unfortunate hydroxychloroquine curves, uh, these do overlap. Uh, so there really was very little difference. Uh, patients seem to do just as well switching or cycling. So certainly, I think we all do that in the clinic uh, uh, and try to see if we can salvage patients fail one JAK. So let's talk about the JAK safety. In the oral surveillance clinical trial, which type of malignancies were not seen more often with tocilinib compared to TNF inhibitors? Breast cancer, lymphoma, lung cancer, or non-melanoma skin cancer? Lance is correct. Breast cancers are actually seen more, uh, more commonly in that particular trial with TNF numbers.
which patients are with the greatest risk of MESA, will, will have the greatest risk of MACE events in the oral surveillance clinical trial. Patients with pre-existing cardiovascular disease, patients with type 2 diabetes, patients age 50 to 65, or a family history of cardiovascular disease. That's correct, pre-existing cardiovascular disease. I'll show you that data. So the safety of JAK inhibitors has been well delineated. And these uh, we, things that we always concern ourselves with with any therapy, serious infectious episodes, opportunistic infections, we know JAK inhibitors are an outlier with an increased risk of opportunistic infections, primarily herpes zoster or herpes other viral infections. So all of our we want all our patients to be vaccinated uh, after they uh, have a diagnosis of inflammatory arthritis, start methotrexate, and so forth. Uh, malignancies are concerned. Uh, hematologic, we see occasional anemia, leukopenia, lymphopenia, which we monitor. Transaminitis occurs with all of our therapies. For some reason, there's a, a very minimal, generally non-clinically significant increase in serum creatinine. A couple of people have had to take off JAK inhibitors uh, for that reason. And occasional increase in CPK. JAK keeps tweeting about acne in the clinical trial, so I had to add it. It wasn't on my slide previously. But certainly seeing in the atopic dermatitis trials with the Krebsidinib, uh, we know the lipids are elevated probably due to IL-6 inhibition, and that was one of the reasons the oral surveillance trial was conducted. And then GI perforations, again, possibly to IL-6, so we're careful in patients with diverticulitis. And then we'll talk in detail about venous thromboembolism. So this is a paper we published uh, years ago looking at uh, 23,000 patients on tofacitinib. This was everyone from phase one on who went into long-term extension trials looking at the adverse events of special interest. You can see the serious infection rate was 2.5 per 100 patient years, herpes zoster 3.6 per 100 patient years, which was certainly increased over what we see with other biologics. And then the other adverse events, which really fell well within the spectrum of what we've seen with biologics in the past. The good news is when you take a look over time, uh, over the months of follow-up, these incidence uh, rates did not increase for serious infectious episodes. They remain stable. That's what you want to see long-term. Uh, this is baricitinib, and just, again, 14,000 patient years, long-term data, March 2022. And again, really nothing different from other JAK inhibitors still. The herpes zoster uh, signal, the rate of uh, VTE was what you would expect, uh, May 0.5 as well. So nothing unusual here uh, for JAK inhibitors. I do want to point out, and this is uh, one thing which we're still getting our hands around in the, in the past doing clinical trials for 40 years, we never really... Okay, thank you. We never really compared, looked at safety as far as statistically different, and we still don't. But if, when you look in your handout, you'll see that with a four milligram baricitinib dose compared to two milligrams, that the numerically there's an increase in adverse events down the whole panel at the higher dose compared to the two milligram dose, which is part of the reason the US FDA did not approve the four milligram dose here, which is approved in the rest of the world. Uh, this is upacitinib, and again, looking at uh, uh, the various adverse events and, and what you can see in general, uh, the adverse events between adalimumab, methotrexate, which were the comparators to phase three, and the phase three program were very similar uh, except for zoster. And then the 30 milligram dose uh, seemed to have the, the greatest risk of adverse events. And that's why it was not moved forward because there was no additional efficacy for the 30 milligram dose compared to the 15 milligram dose as well. In fact, at the bottom right, you can see VTE really well within what we expect to see as far as VTEs. And this is just looking at other adverse events, special interest, transaminitis, really no significant difference. CPK elevation was different for the 
bupacitinib group. And then in that study, I showed you the head-to-head -head comparison of bupacitinib and abatacept. Abatacept is in the little uh, orange balls and the triangles is bupacitinib. And what you can see in general, as far as the percentage of adverse events in this short-term study was greater for bupacitinib than it was for abatacept. And this might reflect the relative safety of abatacept, which we're known to love, and then again, the quirky side effects that we see with JAK inhibitors. It was also clear from data that I, I haven't shown that there's a very narrow threshold of, of dose-related toxicity with these JAK inhibitors. And we learned that very early on in the studies, phase one and phase two studies. So it's not surprising that the eight milligram dose of baricitinib went away, the 30 milligram dose of bupatacitinib, at least in inflammatory arthritis went away, the 10 milligram BID dose of tobacitinib went away, also toxicity issues. So this is uh, again uh, in your handout and basically is looking at um, the uh, VT instance rates in various observational databases, uh, some more clinical trial databases, some more claims-based databases, but the numbers vary, but it's somewhere between 0.5 to 1.5 uh, per 100 uh, patient years. Uh, this was a meta-analysis looking at uh, 42 clinical trials, uh, which 29 were inflammatory arthritis with JAK inhibitors compared to placebo. And uh, basically the bottom line, the pooled instance rate ratio of VTEs was 0.68 with confidence intervals crossing one. So there was their conclusion from this article was the JAK inhibitors are not associated with venous thromboembolic events. So the, the flying the ointment began in actually the uh, placebo-controlled trials for paracidinib, where there were five patients who had VTEs, all with risk factors for VTE, compared to none on two milligram baricitinib and none on placebo. And this raised uh, the question of the FDA. And then uh, follow-up, there really was no increase seen in the long-term follow-up studies, but again, the FDA was concerned about uh, this data. You know, normally is a pretty bland, loose connective tissue. It has a very thin lining layer, just a couple of cells thick, and the sublining layer, which has blood vessels, adipocytes, uh, and connective tissue. In RA, on the other hand, uh, the tissue becomes markedly hyperplastic and massively infiltrated with leukocytes. The lining then is expanded moderately. The major change is the huge expansion of the sublining shown here with a lot of neovascularization and these kind of blue-black staining cells are all infiltrating leukocytes. And this lining-sublining difference is very important, as you'll see. Well, the topic for today is to focus on the fibroblasts in the synovium. And I thought I'd just remind you for a minute of the normal physiological functions of fibroblasts shown here on the left. Um, they're, of course, important for wound healing. Um, they're important in immune responses in lymph nodes and regulation of the stem cell niche in the gut, for example. Many important functions we know well. But there are also many pathologic functions. Of course, most people think of fibroblasts and their relevance in fibrosis and scarring, which of course uh, are very important. But the topics for today will be the role of fibroblasts in invasion and degradation and joint destruction in RA, and their role as inflammatory cells, something that people really hadn't appreciated so much before. Inflammation and joint destruction is mediated very substantially by fibroblasts. Well, to understand the synovium and the fibroblasts that make up the synovium, the synovium is a mesenchymal tissue. 
So the fibroblasts actually are the parenchymal cells, the main cells of the synovium. A number of years ago, we learned that a cadherin, cadherin 11, mediates the morphogenesis of the synovium because it mediates the adhesion of the fibroblasts to one another to form the tissue. These are cell adhesion molecules shown coming from a cell above and a cell below, mediating the adhesion uh, between the cells, in this case, the fibroblasts. And in vitro, if we culture synovial fibroblasts um, from a wild-type mouse, uh, we can grow a lining-like structure uh, in this synovial organoid in vitro. But if we use fibroblasts from cadherin-11 deficient mice, you can see the lining structure doesn't uh, form normally. The same is true in vivo in mice. The synovium is very hypoplastic if they lack cadherin-11. Another feature uh, that we found, uh, which we hadn't expected, was that this cadherin, which is expressed just on mesenchymal cells like fibroblasts, actually determines the way the fibroblasts behave. And so if you knock out uh, the cadherin-11 and generate arthritis in mice, as shown here, you greatly reduce the inflammation. And if you take fibroblasts that either lack above or here below express cadherin-11, you can see that the cells expressing cadherin 11 are much more invasive into this matrix in this assay system. We think this is relevant because when you look at the histology in rheumatoid arthritis, the articular cartilage is shown here, the synovial panis, you can begin to see if these red arrows is essentially burrowing in and eroding away the cartilage. And the cells of the, the panis that are doing that are shown here below, stained with cadherin 11 as fibroblasts compared to an isotype control. So this is just really illustrating that it looks like the fibroblasts may be the cells that are uh, degrading the cartilage in rheumatoid arthritis. Um, and I'll show more that supports uh, that idea. Um, one of the uh, findings uh, from mouse studies that's a very striking study was carried out by Chris Buckley's lab, and it's shown here that if you deplete fibroblasts, you can markedly reduce inflammatory arthritis in mouse models. And that's shown here where we do, they carried out the serum transfer arthritis model. And then here using Fibroblast activation protein alpha, it's, it's upregulated on activated fibroblasts and a diphtheria toxin to then deplete the cells that express that. You can see that the severity of the arthritis is greatly reduced when you deplete the fibroblasts in this mouse model of inflammatory arthritis. And then remember, I commented there were lining and sublining fibroblasts or sections of the synovium containing fibroblasts. Well, they then adoptively transferred intra-articularly into, into mice, lining and sublining fibroblasts that they'd sorted. And the sublining fibroblasts shown here significantly increased the inflammatory process in the arthritis, whereas the lining fibroblasts that were transferred into the joints during arthritis in mice significantly increased either their bone or cartilage damage. And so the leading fibroblast improves rheumatoid arthritis or the mouse models of arthritis. And it's the lining fibroblasts that drive a lot of the destruction and the sublining fibroblasts, which drive a lot of the inflammation. And that's depicted here in this schematic. 
the lining fibroblasts mainly causing the damage, the sublining, the inflammation. Well, I'd like to mention briefly the AMP. This is the AMP RASLE consortium uh, that's been going on for about seven or eight years, uh, supported by NIH and, uh, and, and company uh, partners. And it is intended to be a single cell disease deconstruction consortium in which biopsies of the synovium from RA or the kidney from lupus nephritis are analyzed at the single cell level to try to figure out uh, what the cells are and what they're doing uh, causing the pathology. And for RA, samples are taken from biopsies at many sites around the country and in the UK. And then the cells are subjected to a pathway for single cell RNA sequencing shown across the top. They're also sorted for bulk RNA sequencing. And then they're also sorted for attack seq, which looks at chromatin state and an immune repertoire. I'll show you just a little bit of data from this consortium relevant to the fibroblasts and our story today. Well, if you look at the single cell RNA sequencing from the synovium, from uh, the AMP consortium, you can ask, well, which cells are making most of the IL-6 or one of the most important inflammatory cytokines in RA? And the surprise is, as shown here, it's this population. It's one of the populations of the fibroblasts. It's the major producer of IL-6. Now, the fibroblast populations are depicted here in what's called a Tisney plot, where each of these areas in different colors represents a different cluster, a different subset of fibroblasts. And there are four clusters shown here. And the one that's most important for this discussion is this dark blue population. And the genes that are expressed in these populations are shown here on the right. By one up here on the top is a marker for sublining. So this is a sublining fibroblast population. CD55 is a marker for lining. Those are the fibroblasts down here at the bottom. What's important about this population, in addition to it being in the sublining, is it's the population that's expressing most, almost all the IL-6 and HLA-DR, which is upregulated as part of the antigen presentation. So there's an inflammatory population because it's expressing all the IL-6 that's uh, present in the RA synovium. And that population turns out to be massively expanded in rheumatoid arthritis. These are all the fibroblast populations. And uh, this population represents 1% to 2% of the fibroblasts in rheumatoid arthritis. But this population represents over half of the fibroblasts in rheumatoid arthritis. So it's an inflammatory sublining population it's massively expanded in RA. What might it be doing? When we looked histologically, and this is synovium uh, from an immunofluorescently stained sample, you can see the synovial lining here in green is stained with lubricin, a cardioglycan 4 marker, and the sublining is stained here in blue with thigh 1 or CD90 marker of the, of the sublining. When we looked at this more closely, what we realized is that the sublining fibroblasts, they are below the lining, they're sublining, but they're very much associated with uh, blood vessels. We actually quantitated this, that the ratio of this sublining marker, CD90, over the lining fibroblast marker, cardioglycan 4, correlates closely with the distance the cell is away from the blood vessel.
so they're blood vessel related. And this led us to do the following experiment in which we grew organoids of fibroblasts alone or in the presence of endothelial cells that organize into little blood vessel-like structures. And what we found um, is that when we grew fibroblasts next to blood vessels, we were able to generate the sublining and the pericyte populations, which were absent when the blood vessels were not present. And so to figure out the blood vessels seems like it's necessary to drive differentiation of the sublining fibroblasts. And remember, sublining inflammatory fibroblasts are the most expanded in RA. What or how may blood vessels be doing that? And so we tested a lot of inflammatory cytokines and growth factors and WINTs uh, and uh, things shown along here uh, in this bar graph to see if we stimulated fibroblasts with these factors, which one of them might drive the sublining phenotype. But it turned out that it was jagged one and delta-like ligand four. These are notch ligands that stimulate notch receptors and they were driving the fibroblast phenotype. And if you ask who makes these notch ligands, it's the endothelial cells would come from the blood vessels. And if you ask who has the receptors for those notch ligands, especially it's notch three that's on the fibroblast. And so this then let us ask, uh, if that's all from the human, it let us ask in the mouse, if we delete notch three or use a blocking antibody to notch three, with that, abrogate arthritis in mouse models of inflammatory arthritis. And that's what's shown here in the notch three deleted my mouse. Arthritis is very significantly abrogated. Okay, so we've got sublining fibroblasts, highly inflammatory, they're differentiation driven by notch signaling, and that can be important in regulating arthritis. Well, another feature uh, that we learned about uh, fibroblasts and their activation to produce IL-6. Remember, they're the major IL-6 producer in the synovium in rheumatoid arthritis, is that there's a two-step process to activate the fibroblast. And uh, the first is a, a primary signal, and the second is an amplification loop signal. And that's depicted here in this schematic fibroblast to the left. Primary signal like TNF or IL-17 activates NF-kappa-B and, and other transcription factors that can bind to the IL-6 promoter and drive IL-6 secretion. But in addition, we found that LIF, leukemia inhibitory factor, and STAT-4 were dramatically upregulated in fibroblasts when they were stimulated with several activators. And what we found is that LIF it has a, a cell autonomous or an auto amplification loop because it's secreted by the cell and then binds to the lift receptor on the same fibroblast. And that uh, uh, activates STAT4, which then binds to the IL-6 promoter, producing this massive production of IL-6, just this boatloads are produced by the fibroblast. And not just IL-6, but a larger program of inflammatory factors are released, uh, including IL-8, CSF, CCL-20, uh, and, and, uh, and others. And so fibroblasts are activated and then have this uh, cell autonomous or autocrine activation loop that's important in their response. We think this can be important from a therapeutic point of view because 
you know, you can block each of the individual things that are activating a fibroblast, but you can block fibroblast activation no matter how it's activated by blocking this amplification loop. And that's depicted here. If we silence the lift receptor in this lift lift receptor axis, that blocks IL-6 production, whether the fibroblast is stimulated by TNF and IL-17 or IL-1 or LPS or any of the other things that we've tested. And so uh, there's a large inflammatory module, prominently IL-6, but also other factors that's regulated by this lift lift receptor autocrine loop and blocking that loop blocks activation, no matter how the cells are stimulated. So I'd like to summarize uh, some of the things uh, we've been uh, talking about. Uh, NRA, it's an autoimmune inflammatory disease. We have T cells and B cells and macrophages and a lot of inflammatory cytokines you know well, like TNF and IL-1 and IL-6. And what I've been highlighting is that a lot of these inflammatory factors actually work by stimulating the fibroblasts. Notch uh, ligands are also in that group. And when they stimulate the fibroblasts, there's then this autocrine amplification loop I mentioned, which takes the primary stimulus and just augments it very dramatically to get very high levels of production of inflammatory cytokines. Adherins also modulate the behavior of fibroblasts. And the fibroblasts then have two major behaviors which are involved in the pathology of RA. The one here on the bottom is depicting the fibroblast migrating and invading and degrading the cartilage through MMPs. I've shown you some examples of that. And also its effect on inflammation by producing IL-6, IL-8, a whole variety of chemokines and cytokines. And fibroblasts are also the major, the largest producers of rank ligand in the synovium, which of course activates osteoclasts for bone erosion. So there's many reasons for thinking fibroblasts are playing important roles in rheumatoid arthritis. Okay, well, one more aspect of fibroblast biology that's relevant to RA, I'll highlight next as we begin to think about how uh, patients with RA can be stratified. Well, um, stratification through molecular and cellular terms, not clinical terms in this case, has been an effort so far that uh, is still kind of waiting for its application and its relevance. And we think that day may now be here. I'd like to summarize one example of this. Uh, it's the work from a Cos Pizzalis lab, this particular paper, very wonderful paper last year uh, from uh, Revelisi. Um, and it describes uh, the histologic types of rheumatoid arthritis synovium that you can find um, and separates them into three major groups. Some patients, when you look at the histology, and uh, in this case, we call it pathotypes, they have a very lymphoid myeloid pathotype. So that's reflected here by staining the synovium with a marker for T cells, anti-CD3, B cells, CD20, macrophages, 68, plasma cells, CD138, and a B cell marker, CD79A. And what you see is that the synovium is full of T cells and B cells, macrophages and plasma cells in this pathotype. In the diffuse myeloid pathotype, there aren't many T cells or B cells, but there are a lot of macrophages. And then in this fibroid or posseimmune phenotype or pathotype, 
there aren't many T cells and B cells. There really aren't many macrophages either. There are a few macrophages. They're not so uh, striking. But uh, this is a, a phenotype mostly characterized by fibroblasts. Now, in this same paper, the Pitsalis group did this very uh, valuable comparison of uh, response to drug treatment and then correlated that with these cellular and molecular characteristics of the synovium. So this is the R4RA study in which they took TNF inadequate responders and treated them either with rituximab or with tocilizumab. And then if they failed either of those, then they got treated with the other one. And then you could end up with patients that either did respond to rituximab or tocilizumab or failed response to everything. They were TNF inadequate responders and then failed response to both rituximab and tocilizumab. And they're really multi-drug uh, non-responsive patients or refractory patients. And the reason this is very interesting is then when you look at the RNA-seq, look at the gene expression in the synovium from the biopsies that were taken prior to treatment, so this is the pre-treatment phenotype, what you find is that the non-response to multiple biologics was linked to a pre-treatment fibroblast RNA signature. In other words, these were the non-responding patients were mainly those whose synovium was characterized primarily by its fibroblastic state. And that's depicted here. These genes in red are the genes that were in the refractory or multi-drug resistant patients. And here are some of the genes, fibroblast growth factor, which is the fibroblast relevant gene, notch genes, notch one and notch three, which I showed you through our, uh, our analyses was important in sublining differentiation, collagen genes and Hox genes, which are also my mesenchymal fibroblast genes. Interestingly, the patients who were the responders had a much more inflammatory leukocyte gene-related uh, uh, gene expression picture. And so it's very clear that um, the non-multidrug resistant, non-responding refractory patients really are those that have primarily a fibroblast picture uh, in their synovium. So in summary, um, uh, I've talked about role of fibroblasts, the many pathological features they have, inflammation and tissue destruction. And then by looking at their pathobiology, we begin to identify ways that we think they might be targeted therapeutically for these refractory patients. I've mentioned Catherine 11, which alters their, their pathologic behavior in vitro. I've mentioned fibroblast activation, the primary activators, TNF, IL-1, interferons, we can block one or another of these, and, and that works in some cases for some patients. But the problem is, if you block TNF, you still have IL-1, IL-17 interferons. You, you can't block everything that's activating the fibroblast. And that's why we think blocking the autocrine amplification loop I've described, such as through RIF, RIF receptor, could be an exciting way to treat uh, block fibroblast activation even in the face of many cytokine and other activators uh, in vivo in, in the disease. And we've also talked about the expansion of the sublining fibroblasts being important in driving a big role, a big part of the inflammation in RA, and that we could block this by blocking sublining differentiation through targeting notch or notch ligands. And then finally, 
I've mentioned the example from Chris Buckley's lab where you could deplete the inflammatory or degradative fibroblasts using, for example, uh, an antibody, a deleting antibody. Okay, folks, I think that that was, uh, we cut that off because it uh, was pretty much the end of what Dr. Brenner was uh, talking about as far as strategies um, that would downregulate the um, uh, fibroblast activity. A very interesting concept, uh, was it not? So um, I, we do have um, one question um, from the audience and please, if you have any other questions, feel free to put it into the Q&A field uh, and we can uh, address a few of these. Uh, but the one question was um, not really related to these uh, specific lectures, but was about treating a patient with cancer. So in an RA patient who has a history of cancer um, within the last five years, uh, would you treat the RA patient? And the answer was absolutely positively yes. Uh, and that's based on um, my study of this question for many, many years. Um, I'm a strong advocate in the approach where you let the cancer doctor take care of the cancer and you take care of the arthritis. I can't imagine someone getting treated for a cancer and then having to wait seven or eight years because you're afraid of the potential for recurrence with any of the therapies you're going you're gonna to use. That makes no sense at all. The patient will die uh, under your watchful eye uh, or unfortunately die a slow, painful death um, unrelated to the cancer. So um, number one, ACR guidelines are very, very clear and very evidence-based with strong evidence that says if a patient has a solid tumor cancer, you should treat that patient with RA with a solid tumor cancer as if they had no cancer at all, meaning Use whatever drug you would use, methotrexate, IL-6, IL-1, TNF inhibition, JAX, you name it, you can use it. No restrictions at all. Solid tumor. That's all the tumors that our patients get, really. That's lung, that's breast, colon, prostate, pancreatic, you know, you name it. It's all of them, right? The only one it doesn't answer is the hematologic malignancy, mainly lymphoma. And there, there's some argument, but even there, I would treat, um, it's my job to treat the arthritis and let the hematologist manage the lymphoma. The idea that the hematologist, oncologist is gonna manage your RA by giving them drugs for their cancer, current or past, is a, a foolish one. And again, you have to take responsibility for the management of that. I covered this question in this week's QD clinic where I give you 23 minutes of questions from this RA seminar, uh, audience questions, and I go through all the questions that we didn't get around to ask, answering during the seminars. Again, Room Now Live is unique in that, and uh, I drive my speakers crazy because I don't let them talk for an hour. I don't even let them talk for 30 minutes. I say they have 25 minutes. And then they have five minutes of Q&A with the audience at the end of their talk. And then they come back for an extra half hour. So in a two hour session, We've got 45 minutes of Q&A at Room Now Live. I think it's why it's um, such a popular meeting. Um, Kristen Gowan um, uh, uh, writes in, the fibroblast story is interesting. What will be the side effects of blocking endothelial cell 
and fibroblast interactions like for wound healing. Well, I don't know that he said that we should target endothelial cells. Um, you know, that obviously is a mechanism that's currently in vogue in treating aggressive tumors with, um, you know, bevacizumab and the, bio, the, the biosimilar of that. Uh, and um, even there, bleeding is a, mi a minor side effect. It's not a major side effect. Um, and wound healing hasn't been a tremendous problem in, in that. Um, but I guess that would be a concern, but we're not talking about endothelial targeted therapy. Um, most of what he, uh, Dr. Brenner was talking about was targeting one, the IL-6 receptor really for the autocrine effects of, of fibroblasts making more IL-6 that then feeds back on the IL-6 receptor to further activate fibroblasts, right? And that's, that's something that, that would be one approach that um, he would advocate for. And the other one was the LIF protein and the LIF, LIF receptor targeted therapies. I can see that down the road, we'll be looking at therapies that will target both IL-6 and LIF together as one that will control inflammation, but also control uh, the destruction of RA, which is really mediated through fibroblasts. Um, hi, Dr. Bazavaraju. Uh, um, we share patients. Um, she says, uh, if a major cardiovascular event happens during treatment, do you switch from a JAK inhibitor? And do you pre-screen for cardiovascular risk factors prior to starting JAKs? These are good questions stem from Dr. Cohen's very good lecture on this. Uh, I didn't cover um, the back half of his lecture, which was all about the um, oral surveillance study and the tofacitinib data. If you're interested in that, you should look at what he has to say. His lecture and all these lectures, individual lectures will be posted up on Room Now um, this, uh, this week. Um, but your question, uh, if someone has a, a cardiovascular event, do I switch from a JAK inhibitor? No. Um, I'm per FDA guidelines, I should use a TNF inhibitor before a JAK inhibitor. Um, per EMA guidelines, I should use a JAK inhibitor only if no other acceptable alternatives exist. What we do know from analysis of the oral surveillance study is the people who are really at high risk with JAK inhibitors are over age 65 smokers with a prior MI or a serious cardiovascular history. Those three things are someone who you should not give a JAK inhibitor to because all these bad events are what's seen. MACE events, major adverse cardiovascular events, and the cancers and the VTEs. So if you avoid it in those people, you're going to be doing fine, which is that's actually a small minority of all your patients. I, any one of my patients on, uh, under RA therapy can have a cardiovascular event. Am I going to stop the therapy that was working? No, I'm not going to because I don't believe that any of my therapies really cause cardiovascular events. I believe that inflammation drives cardiovascular events and whatnot. If the patient was very well controlled, then you know they may not want to go back on that same therapy and hopefully you have other options. But I would not reflexly stop a JAK inhibitor just because uh, of a cardiovascular event. But that's really a question that you need to have um, with those patients. So uh, I think that's it um, for um, questions for tonight. I wanna remind you that we're gonna be doing this again next week. Tell your colleagues and friends, um, we're gonna have a very lively discussion on psoriatic arthritis with fabulous lectures by Laura Coates from Oxford, uh, Eric, Ruderman from Northwestern and Christina Chambers, who runs um, 
the pregnancy uh, Otis registry out of the University of California, San Diego. Christina is the most knowledgeable person on our drugs and pregnancy. She's going to talk about pregnancy issues surrounding um, psoriatic arthritis. Anyway, that's it for tonight's program. We'll see you next week here on Tuesday Night Rheumatology. Have a good night.